0: Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 14 this morning. Revelation chapter 14, back in our verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation, and we're going to finish chapter 14. We were we've been ticking an incredible hiatus from chapter 14. After, you know, the first, we had two, two sermons in the first two uh, sections of chapter 14. Now we'll, f- we'll sum it up in chapter 14, verses 14 through 20. So stand with me once you're there. We're gonna read our text. Revelation chapter 14, verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud And seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out from the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside of the city and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle for 1600 stadia father we ask you now lord that you would come and speak to our hearts we thank you for your word and for what you desire to speak to us today about so we we just humble ourselves before you we pray you remove any preconceived ideas in our hearts lord and that we would allow your spirit to speak and just speak to us so we, we thank you for what you're going to do through your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So we're going to play a, a, a quick game of Name That Tune. You guys down with that? So Name That Tune, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say some lyrics to a, a famous song, and I want you to see if you know what this song is. And it goes like, and if you were here first service, you can't answer, right? So it, it goes like this. He's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible Swiss sword. Anybody know what that is? What song that is? Yeah, what song is that? It's not Glory, Glory, Hallelujah. What song is it? Hey, all right. Battle Hymn of the Republic. Exactly, but that, that, is, a, that is the chorus. Glory, Glory, Hallelujah, right? So Battle Hymn of the Republic. It was written by Julia Ward, how in 1862 and it really the the idea of it comes from revelation chapter 14 verses 14 through 20 you know she wrote it for a different reason and uh um, you know for, for the she was asked to write it to memorialize um a guy named john brown but but the point of it is is that you know in order to do that what she's what she's really saying the vindication uh, that comes as a result will not come through man but through Christ you know when we think about you know the lord maybe we've had somebody that in our life that something happened to and they end up dying and we want vindication we want vengeance you know we want the lord but ultimately it doesn't matter what happens on the horizontal cuz it's not true vengeance right but ultimately when Christ comes he will bring the judgment upon all mankind for, for all the deeds of those who are unrepentant and have not turned to Christ. And, and that is the idea. I mean, listen to the words of this song. You heard a few of them, but listen. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Starting out right away, it's about the coming of the Lord. He's trampling out the vintage of the grapes of wrath that are stored. He the luth, the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Of course, the chorus of that through each one of those stanzas is glory, glory, hallelujah, glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah, his truth is marching on. I have seen him in the watch fires of a hundred circling camps. They have builded him an altar in evening dews and damps. I can read his righteous sentence by the dim and flaring lamps. His day is marching on. I have read a fiery gospel written, burnished rows of steel, As ye deal with my contemners, so with you my grace shall deal. Let the hero born of woman crush the serpent with his heel, since God is marching on. He has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never call retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift my soul to answer, be jubilant my feet. Our God is marching on. In the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea with a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. As he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free while God is marching on. And then glory, glory, hallelujah. The depth of the verses of this song are amazing. 100% 100% biblical when you think about the picture of, of Jesus Christ and what will happen when he comes back to this earth. He's coming with vengeance. He's coming with judgment. He's coming to set the world straight. And that's what the picture of this word is. You know, and it's not a popular thought in our culture today. I don't want to focus on the Jesus the angry, or Jesus the vengeful, or Jesus the judge. People would rather focus on Sermon on the Mount Jesus, or the forgiving, adulterous woman Jesus, while ignoring the turn the tables of the temple Jesus, or even the wrathful Jesus presented here in the book of Revelation. Miss Howe had in mind when she was writing these words, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he would do when he comes. You know, the Bible tells us that there would be two appearances if Jesus would come twice. The first time that he would come, he would come to deal with sin. He would come to be the sacrifice for you and I. He would become the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the first coming of Jesus. Born of a virgin, you know, lives a sinless life, uh, is, is able to become the sacrifice for you and I to take on the sin of the world so that anyone who desires to be reconciled to the Father can be through the blood of Jesus Christ. That was his first coming. And I'll tell you this, the resurrection of Jesus is sort of the stamp upon his works of what he's done for you and I. That's why the resurrection is so important because it tells you and I that he was, his sacrifice is sufficient, that his blood is enough to cover you and I. When he ascended into, you know, in the clouds, as the disciples, the apostles and the disciples watched him go up, they were expecting to come back. And in fact, all the prophecies in the Old Testament spoke about uh, Jesus coming back with a sword in judgment and and many people many of the people of the um the old covenant missed that thought that Jesus would come the first time as the sacrifice but they were looking for judgment Jesus they were looking for the one who would come and 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 and, and instill his kingdom on earth and of course because the Jews were his chosen people they were longing for that to happen especially around the time Jesus showed up, because they were under Roman occupancy. They were, they were being ruled by the Romans, and they didn't want that. Neither did the disciples, and the, the theology of the day was, well, just wait till Messiah comes. When Messiah comes, then the world will be set in order, and all will be great, because we're his people. And yet they missed the fact that there was a sacrifice required. You see, they put their faith in the temple. They put their faith in, in the works of the temple and not in the symbol of the temple. Who is Jesus? Everything pointed to Jesus. Well, guess what? Don't worry because in the millennial kingdom, uh, the Jews will get to see how all of that relates to Jesus Christ, how all of it pointed to Jesus, every single thing in the temple in the Old Covenant, how it pointed us back to Jesus. And guess what? I think we'll get to see that too. I don't know, you know, you read Ezekiel chapter 40 through 46 and you think about the millennial kingdom and, you, and all the things that will be going on as Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom on earth, how amazing that will be. But there were two comings, and the second one hasn't happened yet. But when it does, the world will know. And it, it's not going to be a pretty sight because he's coming in vengeance. He's coming in judgment. He's coming with a sword. We see this pictured in our text this morning in these, in what I'm calling the tale of two harvests. It's the title of my message, The Tale of Two Harvests. We find in our text two specific harvests, a grain harvest and a grape harvest, uh, or, or, you know, some refer to it as a a vintage. Um, But the the, the idea of it is that it's all about the second coming of Christ. It's all about the Lord coming to this earth and uh, doing exactly what the Jews thought he would do in the first place and setting up his kingdom. They just missed the first part. And so as we look at this text this morning, I just want to start out by saying this is one of those texts that I, I think like I have not seen such a diversity of, uh, uh, of interpretation uh, yet through the book of Revelation until I've come to this chapter. This chapter is so diverse in its interpretation that it's like, I don't even know how, how, what, how do you... You know, you, you know, we don't follow man. We follow the Holy Spirit and what the Lord shows us in the Word. But, you know, you, as you look at different resources and, and things, you're just like, man, there's so much, so much division over what this is saying. This, this is the set of passages, and in, in particularly verses 14 through 20, where people get a mid-trib rapture or a pre-wrath rapture. This is where they get it from. And, uh, you know, so, so as I'm coming to this passage and I'm thinking, like, there's great diversity. I, I like to quote the great, the great and late Gomer Pyle here that, you know, surprise, surprise, surprise that there's diversity in the interpretations of uh, this passage, but it is true. So that, no, that, I say that because I know that there's probably going to be different people that believe different things in this room, and that's okay. It's fine, but, but here's the thing is, you know, when you come to, to a, a passage like this that, is not super clear, and if it was super clear, there wouldn't be as a, a ton of, diver, uh, you know, diversity in interpretation. As a pastor, I think, I, I rely on the Holy Spirit, and I say, Lord, I got to teach it the way that you show me it, and that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to teach it the way that the Lord has showed it to me, and, um, you know, I think, I think the thing that we, we can lose when we start to make it all about the interpretation is the main point, and the main point in this section, and the main point of all of this going on right now is Jesus is coming to judge the world. That is the main point. You know, all the, input, the, the, all the particulars relating to all of that is what we divide over. It's not even the main point. The main point is so clear that everybody gets the main point, but it's all the details of the main point. You know, is the rapture going to happen here or there or whatever? I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but what I'm saying is we should never divide over that kind of stuff. So if you take this as a, a mid-trib rapture, I don't see it that way. I see pre-trib rapture. That's that's the way I see it, and as I'm teaching through this, it's it's so clear to me, but it might not be to you. So you go before the Lord and say, Lord, we know Pastor Tim's wrong. Will you help him to see clearly, Lord? Will you show him the light, God? You know, and and that's fine, But but you know, we certainly shouldn't divide over stuff like that. You know, we, we're, we're called Bible students. And students don't have arguments. We have conversations about things that we don't agree with. And mature people, um, you know, we don't, we don't go, oh, that's it. You don't see it my way. It's my way or the highway. That's immaturity, right? But mature people say, it's okay if we don't agree on this. Because guess what? When we're raptured before the tribulation, I'll say, hey, see, I told you. You know, but... Uh, <laughs> it's funny, <laughs> but uh, regardless, I just wanted to say that the way, I, kind of the way I see this is there, there p- some people take this as there's a, the ingathering of believers in the first section of v- verses 14 through 16, and then 17 through 20 are talking about the ingathering of unbelievers under judgment. I don't think so. Uh, some people believe that it's you know there, there's there's the ingathering of both the believers and unbelievers in the first section and then uh, the, the 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 battle of Armageddon and the judgment the wine press that's being spoken of here. I don't think so. I take this, and I'll show you why here in a minute. But I take this as one event that Jesus that's being described to us from different angles on the multiple things that are going to be happening. I know it's it's hard to think about, you know, in in the in the 7 years in the tribulation period. Do you know that there things will happen that aren't written in the Bible? Do you know that? Like it's it's just to give us a glimpse of what's going to happen. The Lord wants us to be in the know, but it doesn't mean all the details are going to be you know, are going to be in here number 1 and and also that we're going to necessarily the, that, that the Lord is trying to describe you know, maybe one event in six different ways, just like the Gospels. There was one Jesus, but how many Gospels do we have? Four, why do we have four Gospels? Because they're different perspectives of the same person. It's to help us understand who Jesus is. So I take this as one event and um, uh, different details about the one event. The one event is the second coming of Jesus Christ what happens at the second coming of Jesus Christ, and that's what I think this is really talking about, primarily because of, of, uh, remember, we're we're in a parenthetical pause. It's been a while, but we're in a parenthetical pause that starts kind of in chapter 12 and moves all the way through chapter 15, really uh, of things that God is revealing to John in a big picture outline, not necessarily chronologically, right? And there's multiple of these little pauses that happen through the book of Revelation. So um, I say all that to say we're, we're lo- I'm looking at this as one event and really re- re- revolving around the second coming of Christ. So both of the harvests that we find are divided exactly the same. So there's a reaper, there's the ripeness of, of the harvest, and then there's the reaping. So first we're gonna look at the grain harvest and we're gonna look at who is the reaper of the grain harvest in verse 14. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. So the first question we have to ask is who is this person? Well, guess what? There's a couple different interpretations. Some people believe this is an angel. I don't think so. Uh, You know. I think this is Jesus Christ, and that's kind of the other idea, and there's four things in this verse that I think indicate that it's Jesus. First, how he appears. Look, it says that John sees one riding on a white cloud. So, uh, you know, when you look at, um, when you look at that in your concordance, or you do a search, or whatever, of white cloud in your Logos Bible software, which I use, which is super awesome, by the way, Uh, you know, takes me two seconds to do a search, you have all these verses that pop up that are relating to that. Uh, And what we do is we look back to kind of what is the general use of that term, and who is it speaking of? You know, when you think about a white cloud, what do you think of? You should think of God, because that's really the context of a cloud in the Bible. When you think about a cloud, you should be thinking about God in the Old Testament and how he, he led the children of Israel. You know when, when the glory of the Lord came into the temple, it was sort of a s- smoke or a cloud that, that descended. When, uh, when, when Moses was on Sinai, it was a descendant of a cloud. When, when Joshua was in the tent of meeting, it was a cloud that covered the tent. And, and so we know this is a representation. God is the rider of the clouds. And then we come to Daniel chapter seven, in verses 13 through 14, and Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and uh, was presented before them. And to him was given glory, uh, dominion, glory, and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed what john is seeing is the exact same picture that daniel saw and it's speaking about jesus christ coming listen to establish his kingdom we talked about this last week that the main message of the new testament is repent for the kingdom of god is at what hand it's at hand it's not it's not fully here yet but it's at hand Meaning, it's, it, it, Jesus is going to institute his kingdom very soon. He already has come to do the work to institute the kingdom. He came to be the victor to win the, the kingdom back. But now, when he comes back, that's when the kingdom will come. Remember, his disciples asked these questions. Uh, you know, what is, when is this going to happen, and when will you bring your kingdom in, and, and these kinds of things? They were curious about the kingdom because that's the theology that they, were, that they understood that. And it's right, theology, there is a kingdom coming. Daniel spoke about the one who is going to come, he's going to be given dominion and glory and kingdom. They knew that this is speaking of the Messiah. They knew this is speaking about the, the, the Savior of the world, but the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who we know to be Jesus Christ. And, and so John is seeing uh, an appearance of the same thing that Daniel saw, a rider on the cloud, number one, but number two, listen to what John calls him. John says that the rider on the cloud who was seated on, seated on the cloud is one like a son of man. Now that's the exact same description that Daniel saw. Daniel also called him a son of man. You know, the phrase son of man, if you, if you look at that in the Bible, it can only be used in two ways. Number one, it can reference a human being as sons of man. You know, in the Old Testament, they, they talk about it, it's referring to human beings at times where, where a son of man is being spoken of. I think in Z- Ezekiel uh, is called a son of man or whatever. It's talking about a human being, right? But it's also a title that was given to Jesus Christ to refer to his humanity, to speak of the humanity of Jesus. Do you know that Jesus used that phrase, son of man, more than anybody else did? He didn't walk around being called son of man, he called himself son of man. I think that's interesting. Because son of man is a reference to his humanity. If he were to walk around and say, I'm son of God, well, son of God means I'm deified, I am God. But Jesus didn't walk around like that. He, he, he is the son of God, don't, don't get me wrong but he often referred to himself as son of man. Don't you think that's interesting? I mean, because of what Paul gives us clarity and understanding of what Jesus did when he came to this earth, and and I think Jesus wanted to point you and I to the fact that he did take on flesh. Paul talks about Jesus emptying himself of his glory and, and taking on the likeness of man. Now, we have, to make that, we have to make a uh, sort of delineage between the likeness of man relating to you and I and the likeness of man relating to Adam in the Garden of Eden because Jesus came in the likeness of, of Adam in the Garden of Eden. That's why he's referred to in, in the New Testament as the second Adam. Why is that important? Because uh, Jesus didn't have an earthly father and so that... that that means that he came in the same flesh as Adam came, meaning he was in, in perfect flesh with free will, just like Adam had. He was just like Adam pre-fall. That's the likeness Jesus came into. And the, the way that we know that is that's why the virgin birth is so important. Because if Jesus had an earthly father, if Joseph was his dad, then he was in sinful flesh. He was in sinful flesh, but he was in flesh and then he was filled with spirit and that's how he lived sinless. He took on the same nature and character as Adam, but he walked in that character and nature flawlessly, sinlessly. He was tempted just like Adam was tempted, but he sinned not. In every situation, Jesus fulfilled that. Very important. He uses that term, son of man, to point us back. I think it's a, re- we, we should be mindful of the fact that Jesus came in the flesh. He was a human being. Yes, he was God at the same time, but he was a human being and he limited himself to the power of the Holy Spirit so, and he walked in a sinless manner. And I think that says to you and I, hey, maybe I'm being a little too, soft on myself maybe I'm saying like oh it's the sinful flesh listen you have the spirit of God in you we talked about last week you know that means that yeah you're gonna mess up that's not that's not the point it's not I'm not talking about sinless perfection but I'm talking about not uh not also being so so flippant about walking in holiness that you blame it on the flesh all the time Because you have the spirit of God, if you're a believer, you have the spirit of God in you and you have God's nature inside of you. So you should desire to do the right things. You know, and and when you don't, when you fail, you repent and you ask the Lord to reconcile yourself. So I think Jesus is saying a lot in the way that he says that term. It's a title. It's meant to refer us to Jesus. It's, by the way, never used in the Bible as a reference to an angel. So I don't see this being an angel. Um, and and, and not, not only that, but, but look at also, uh, we have the appearing of, of, of this one who's riding on the clouds. We have the title of the one, what he's called, Son of Man. But also look what he's wearing. He's wearing a, a golden crown on his head. This is also interesting. The crown that, that is, is being spoken of here is not the diadem crown that a king would wear. You know, we think like, oh, this is, if this is Jesus, then it should be the diadem crown, right? Why? Because he's the king of kings, right? So he should be wearing the diadem crown. He does wear the diadem crown. But also, I want to point you back to what he did on planet Earth when he came the first time, and he, uh, he gained victory over sin and death. Right? So he was also at the same token given the Stephano's crown, which is the victor's crown. Uh, Jesus is not only the king of kings, but he is also the champion of the universe. He's the victor of all. So therefore, it's not wrong for Jesus to be coming back in the victor's crown. It would make sense as he comes back to set up his kingdom then that he's wearing the victor's crown saying, I have rightful ownership to this earth because I paid, with, paid for it with my blood, as he would, in my mind, show the wounds of his hands and his side, referencing back to how he gained victory over sin and death. Jesus wore a crown of thorns so that he could wear the victor's crown, folks. He was crowned always, and he wears a bunch of different crowns The diadem for sure, he is the king of kings, but he's also the victor overall. Number four, we also know by what he's holding that this is Jesus. It says that this this one has a sharp sickle in his hand. The sickle was a tool used for harvesting. You know what it is. It's that long broom, long-handled thing that has a handle coming off to the side and a, a big, you know, metal blade at the end of it that's curved and you... Would use it to just sweep across. You know how you mow your lawns. You know back in the old days. Like, you guys probably should do that again and and just bring back the sickle to mow your lawns. You know, and and put your kids on it and see how that goes. But um, they probably end up chopping their leg off or something. Don't do that. But 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 the point of it is, it's a tool that's used to cut down. It's a tool that's used to cut down. It's used for harvesting. And what we see here is that. Uh, Jesus is possessing this this sickle in his hand. Why? Because he's the judge of the world. He has been given, uh, you know, Peter calls Jesus the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Jesus Christ, again, is is God, so he has multiple, um, you know, different attributes and things like that, but he's not just the savior of the world, but he's the judge of all mankind at the very same time. Savior of the world, but judge of all mankind, and really the focus of this, this passage is judgment. Jesus having the sickle representing the judgment that's about to come down. He's about to mow down the world. Paul Paul also makes reference to a, uh, to a judgment that Not just unbelievers will have, but also believers. Do you know Jesus will also judge the living and the dead? He's going to judge believers and unbelievers. The judgment that you and I are going to have, Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, is a judgment of our works. You know, the Lord has expectations for you, right? Ephesians 2.10, 10, were his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he created beforehand that we should walk in? So he has an expectation of you and I doing something with a redeemed life that we've been given, amen? Uh, and we'll be judged on that one day. He's not gonna judge you on your sin because your sin has been dealt with. If, uh, you know, if justification isn't uh, complete, completely wiping away past, present, and future sins, we're in big trouble, folks. Thankfully, that is the definition of justification. All wiped away, your slate is clean, You've been justified before the Father. His blood, Jesus Christ, His blood is sufficient enough to cleanse you and to wash you clean. So, it's not a, God isn't going to be dealing with His church and their sin at, in, on Judgment Day for the believer. God is going to be dealing with the, the believer and their works, what they did with Jesus after they became believers. What did you do with the gifting that God gave you? What did you do with, you know, um, the, 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 the Great Commission? What did you do with these things? How did you exercise those things in your life? You know, what I know is God's not going to force me to do anything, but he is going to call me to account one day. I do know that. And, um, you know, and he's going to judge me on, you know, did I, did I do these things for myself or did I do these things for you, Lord? Did I... Did I want the pat on the back to say, hey, oh, good job, or, or did I do it when nobody else was looking so that you got all the glory? You know, we, we, we should do everything that we do, the Bible says, for his glory. I have no idea what that was, but uh, but but here's the reality of it. Jesus is coming to judge. He said in John chapter 5, verse 22, for the, ju- for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. It's right for Jesus to have a sickle in his hand in the second coming because he's coming for judgment. He's coming for vengeance. He's coming to set his kingdom in place that he's he's already won. It's not necessarily, like we think about the battle of Armageddon. Um, Newsflash, it's not really a battle. It's really just Jesus taking over with a word. He's going to slay people down. The idea of him, of the sword coming out of his mouth as he just speaks and it happens. Like he doesn't need an army with him. He just does it himself. He takes care of all of it. He doesn't need anybody's help. It'll be that fast. You know, I don't don't think this is going to be a battle uh, when the second coming of Christ, when the world's going to stand against Christ and it's going to be this big ordeal and take, uh, you know, Hours or days or weeks or months. I think it's going to be very, very quick, probably in millisecond format. No one can stand against Christ in all of his glory when he comes with the victor's crown on his head and the sickle in his hand. And listen, at that point, folks, the door to the gospel is closed. If you've waited that long, to give your life to Christ, it's too late. You see Jesus, it's too late. We are called to come by grace through faith. Faith is, is not seeing Jesus and then believing. It's, it's believing without seeing. Not blindly, but believing in like the word of God, what it says. That day's coming. Jesus is, is the reaper of this passage. Number two... Let's look at the ripeness, verse 15, and another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in the sickle and reap for the hour to reap is come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Now, this is where people have a problem because the, the, the term another angel here is commanding Jesus to do something. If the rider of the cloud is Jesus, then this angel is now telling uh, Jesus what to do. Hey Jesus, put the sickle in and reap, reap for the hours come to reap and all this stuff. Um, The the instruction is is not the focus point of this situation. The, the the actual where he's coming from should be the focal point because that tells you in what way that he's coming. This says that this angel came out of the temple in heaven. Well, who's who's in the temple of heaven? The Father. This, 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 this angel is not coming on his own behalf speaking to Jesus. This angel is coming on behalf of the Father speaking to the Son. Remember, Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour and when the Son of Man will appear, right? No one knows that. Jesus doesn't know that. He even said that. The the timing relating to all of this is all instituted by the Father. It's all instituted by the Father. and And, you know, when the Father says the hour has come, then the Father's, uh, the father's uh, you know, telling Jesus it's time to go get your kingdom. It's time to institute your kingdom on earth. That's what he's saying. And so there's a timing involved in it. And, you know, it's going to be like a thief in the night, man. People aren't going to be expecting it. As the days of Noah were, will be the days of the coming of the Lord. What does that mean? That means people are totally indifferent regarding their sin. That, were, that was the days of Noah where basically people were totally indifferent of their sin, and Noah preached uh, repentance, and he preached to the people for how long? 120 years before judgment came, right? Uh, we've been here for 2,000 years preaching judgment's coming, Jesus is coming back soon. Granted, the church has lost its way a few times, but but the message has always been there. The judgment is coming, the second coming of Christ. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. It's a warning. And at some point, the hour will come. And when the hour comes, nobody's stopping that. When the hour comes... Uh, it will come when the earth is fully ripe. How many of you guys think the earth is fully ripe? Like, fully ripe, the idea is not just ripe, but overripe. It's dried and withered. Or, or, or the idea can be that it's like literally rotting off, uh, you know, the vine. Like, the, like it's so overripe that it's, it's rotting. You guys like bananas? We're not talking like a green banana, which is too hard to eat, right? And it's too bitter. But we're also not talking a uh, we're not talking a perfectly ripe one that's yellow and it doesn't have any brown spots on it or anything like that. But it's and it's good and it's sweet and soft, but not too soft, because you know when it gets to the brown stage, that's just disgusting. Like who wants a brown banana, right? People who like banana bread. Come on, <laughs> that's that's what we use banana bread for. You know the judgment of the banana is the banana bread. So. Uh, <laughs> The, 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 the idea that it's fully right means the world is overdue for judgment. Do you think the world is overdue for judgment? I mean, considering we, we kill an estimated 20, 125,000 children a day, aborting them, um, that's probably enough. But, but just in case you were wondering, you know, what about the 27 million people who are subject to human trafficking? worldwide, or the 2,000 children a day that are forced into prostitution, you know, or, or the 2 million children under the age of 18 that are being prostituted worldwide, 300,000 in our own nation. The wickedness that is occurring in our culture right now, I mean, Billy Graham called this a long time ago. He said, if God doesn't, and again, it's, he's a man, but he said, if God uh, doesn't uh, come soon, He's gonna to have to apologize for Sodom and Gomorrah for, for where we're at as a nation and the wickedness that's happening. But we're, t- we're talking worldwide stuff here. Like these things are happening worldwide. The wickedness that's prevailing in our world today. The world is overripe. The Father's the determiner of what that looks like, but it's ready. And when, when Jesus comes, it's gonna to be too late for anybody to turn to him. So we have the the reaper, uh, we have the ripeness now. The reaping, verse sixteen. So he who sat on the clouds swung the sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. This is a picture of Jesus coming to strike down the, the earth. And and honestly, I think this points us to Matthew chapter thirteen. You can look it up later, verses twenty four through thirty. The parable there, where Jesus gives uh, um, talks about the um, about the the weeds and the the tares, about you know, a farmer who planted with with some some weed and then his enemy came and sowed tares within his field. And so when they grew up, you know, the Darnell plant, which is a weed, actually looks just like wheat to a point until it, it, it reaches, when it's over-harvested, it actually becomes like a weed. And you can see the difference. And Jesus says in that parable, uh, verse 29, but he said, no less in, in get. He said, gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but then gather the wheat into my barn. And the idea is that there are tares in the world and uh, the harvesting will happen by Jesus there. The harvesting that's going to happen is a judgment harvest because where are they being put? They're being put in bundles and burned. That's what it's talking about here in that, in that passage The in-gathering, I think, of what what is being spoken of here is an in-gathering of the tares, which is exactly that parable. Um, Some people believe that this is a harvest of believers, you know, first, and then unbelievers, but that's not what that parable says. That parable says, gather the weeds first, then bind them and burn them. It doesn't say gather the believers first, gather the weeds first. So, you know, pre-trib rapture, we think that this isn't speaking about the rapture. This would be speaking at the second coming of Christ. Would there be an in-gathering of believers? Again, this is where people get a, a mid-trib or a pre, pre-wrath um, rapture view, which I don't think is, is what it's saying. I think the focus here is judgment that comes down upon those who are not of the Lord. And that's the parable of Matthew 13. And I'll, and I'll show you why at the end here. But so Christ then reaps the world. Now we move into the second harvest here, the grape harvest, the reaper, verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. Notice the reaper here is not Jesus, but another angel. He's, he's, he's an actual angelic being. That's an instrument of judgment coming out of the temple in heaven from the father with a sharp sickle. Which again represents judgment. Some suggest that there are two harvests happening here in this result at different times. Again, I told you earlier, I think this is the same event describing, uh, described differently. Um, here we have the angel coming out of the temple with uh, the, the sharp sickle. The, the reaper there is an actual angelic being. Verse 18, here's the ripeness. And another angel came out of the altar. The angel who had authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters of the wine of the earth for its grapes are ripened. So, so here we have the, the reaper being an angel who has a sickle, and then another angel coming out from the altar now, and he has authority over fire. What is Fire. Remember, we talked about this before when we mentioned it. We came to the altar, the brazen altar in Revelation chapter 6 and Revelation chapter 8, and we talked about the fire as representative of judgment. It was what burned the sacrifices in the Old Testament, Um, the the fire being a picture of judgment. Oftentimes, um, people incorrectly talk about being baptized with fire as if it's the Holy Spirit. That is not what that means. Being baptized with fire is trials or difficulty. Uh, fire in general is meant to speak about difficulty or it's meant to speak about judgment. That's what it means. You know, so, so here we have uh, John Wolford said that this, this angel who's coming out of the altar who has authority over fire um, and is probably in response, God's sending him now to come and say judgment is, is now as a response to the prayers of the martyrs who are sitting underneath the throne of God. Again, I take you all the way back to Revelation 5 where they're praying, how long, O Lord? How long before you avenge avenge us, Lord? How long are you gonna allow the world to continue on in this way without vengeance? And here, this angel who has authority over the fire, uh, the sacrifice we talked about of the prayers and the, uh, the, the, the incense and such, this angel probably being sent as a result of that or as a result of the martyrs praying, God, how long? And remember what he said to him. Just wait a little longer. Just wait a little longer. God is, God is so patient that he's waiting for the world to be overripe. Overripe. He, he longs that no one would perish, but all would come to repentance. And, and now judgment is due. And so the reaping happens in verse 19. So the angel swung the sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the and the wine press was trodden outside the city, and the blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia, or 184 miles. That's a long way for blood to flow. 184 miles. Come on, we're we're not talking, we're not talking. Uh, Literally, here are we. We, we. When the literal sense makes perfect sense, make no other sense lest you make nonsense. We take a literal view of the word of God. I don't know how that works, but that's what it says. Here, here, here's, here's what we know. What's being spoken of here was not just spoken of here. It was also spoken of by the prophet in Joel chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. And this is where I tie all this together. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Joel, like Isaiah depicts God's future judgment of the wicked in the imagery of, of a winepress and of a harvest. You know, this is speaking about Jesus Christ and the idea of the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley that, that divides sort of Mount Sinai or Mount Moriah from the, the Mount of Olives and you have the temples here on On this side and the Mount of Olives on this side and the Valley of Jehoshaphat that comes down through there and I'm not going to talk about this but but also down into the Valley of Jezreel which is where the Battle of Armageddon will take place folks. We'll, We'll come across this in Revelation 16 and 19. I don't have time to go into it but that's what this is speaking about. That's what Joel was talking about. That's what John is talking about right here. And he says it's all about the second coming of Christ. When Jesus comes back, uh, he's going to slay. The the world will actually be coming against itself. The Antichrist will be fighting against other kings that are reigning in this world. And they will see Jesus come, and they will all turn and try and fight him. That doesn't work out very well. Uh, The result is they're like grapes in a wine press, They're squashed and squeezed to the point that it says that blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle. How high is a horse's bridle? The estimation is that it's four feet. Four feet. Some say, well, it's because it's splashing up. I don't know. But what I know is blood will flow from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle. That's what it says for 184 miles, folks. The fury and the wrath of God that is coming upon this earth is like nothing anyone has ever seen. And he's not doing it because he wants to. Because he, I'm gonna make these people pay. That's not why he's doing it. He's doing it because he has to. There's no other choice for the Lord. He's a loving and kind and gracious God, but he's also a judge and righteous and holy. Holy. And that's what makes God, God. You and I are one or the other. We're incredibly compassionate and kind, but we're horrible at keeping people accountable. Or we're, we're really stringent when it comes to keeping people accountable, but we're not compassionate and kind at all. But God is the perfect of all of these things combined together. And he will execute judgment upon those who reject God. The, the offer that he's given through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's what this is speaking about. Judgment is coming. There, there's coming a time when, and I think very, very soon, when the Father will say the door is shut, the hour has come. Here comes Jesus to set up his kingdom. And so what we have to, what we have to do with that information is, you know, for some of us here today, we're believers and we're like, man, I'm so glad that Jesus took the wrath that belonged to me. He drank the cup of wrath on the cross for you so that you don't have to experience that wrath. But, and so we're here today, and we're kind of like, well, man, I'm so glad I don't have to go, go through that. Other of us aren't sure where we sit with the Lord. We're not sure. We're not confident. We don't have assurance that, you know, we're, going, that we're not going to um, experience this, and that's because we're not sure about our relationship with God. You know, God wants you to know this morning that you can have total security in him, in Jesus. And some of us, it's just a mental thing that we have to get over. But for some of us, it's because it's a conviction of the Holy Spirit because we're not genuinely saved. And what makes a Christian a Christian? How do you know if you're a Christian? How do you know if Christ has come in your life? You change. Again, I point you back to 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anybody's in Christ, he's a new creation. Your old person is not totally gone, but you're new, and you're not falling. You're not, you're not that old person. There's not just the same, I just prayed a prayer, and I stayed exactly the same. God wants you to examine your heart. That's what Paul said. Examine your heart to make sure you're what? In the faith. Why? that goes to show you that it's possible to fool yourself. It goes to show you that it's possible for you to think that you have something that you don't. And, you know, I'm not here to talk you out of your salvation. What I'm here to talk to you, to challenge you in your salvation. I'm here to say, are you you genuinely saved? God wants you to be, man. Do you know that God did not create hell for you and I? He created hell for the devil and his angels. James says that. So that means that if you're in hell, you're trespassing because you don't belong there. You're not supposed to be there. But God will let you go there if you reject his way. And his way is through Jesus Christ. So as we close today, man, I just want to encourage you to examine your hearts, you know, to see if you're in the faith. We come across these passages and speaking of judgment and, and all of that, and, and yet we, God is so patient and kind that he hasn't, he hasn't allowed this to happen yet. If God would have, would have come, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, some of us would be in hell right now because we didn't come to Christ until later. And so, you know, be compassionate. Be praying for people. Take the gospel seriously. Take it into the world. It's the most powerful message. Listen, it changes people's lives. Amen? Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word and uh, for this opportunity to gather here today. Lord, we thank you for just this, the... The picture in Revelation chapter 14 and the last few verses here, Lord, that speak about the coming judgment, and Lord, what a gracious God you are to warn us over and over and over again of the ramifications of not uh, coming to faith and knowledge in your Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, for anyone here this morning that doesn't have that confidence in in Christ to know that they. Uh, they've truly put their hearts and, and souls and really given him all. We pray, Lord, even now that um, you, would, you would call them to yourself. Salvation is, is, is a result of God you drawing us. And so we pray for anyone here this morning that, that doesn't have that right relationship with you, that they come to the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ by simply acknowledging that they're a sinner, Lord, that they've missed the mark, that they don't live the way that you've called them to live, But that you sent a Savior, Jesus, and that He died on a cross and rose again from the dead for us, so that we can be safe, so we can be reconciled to the Father. Lord, we pray just for genuine repentance in this place this morning, for um, that you would cause the hearts to turn to you, turn away from sin. Again, turn to turn to return to you. It's a decision. We ask for your spirit to flood this place in these last few minutes, Lord. And we thank you for all that you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with us? Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's word.